bring to us what you have on your heart? Yes. great to be back with you here. I was, uh, it's my second time, uh, a little over a couple of years ago. Uh, I was, uh, I was here and, uh, it's really a pleasure to be back again. Uh, in deciding what to share, I had a certain, uh, limitation, uh, that, um, most authors have, you know, whatever you've been, uh, working on writing recently is what everyone needs to hear about. <laughs> and uh, so this is uh, no exception to that. Uh, I have a, a new book coming out in a couple months. Uh, and, uh, but in this case, I think it is quite uh, relevant to the time. I hope it's relevant to you all. Um, the, the name of the book is uh, Jerusalem Crucified, Jerusalem Risen. Uh, and the, uh, the subtitle is uh, The Resurrected Messiah, the Jewish People, and the Land of Promise. The, uh, the, the point of the title, Jerusalem Crucified, Jerusalem Risen, uh, is... Uh, is that I am trying to, to uh, present the, the history of the Jewish people, the life of the Jewish people in history, uh, as something that is bound up with the, the gospel message itself. That the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which is at the very heart of what the gospel is, uh, I'm arguing that the Jewish people are so bound up with the person of Jesus and the land of Israel is so bound up with, with his person that his death and his resurrection have a kind of prophetic consequence for the life of the Jewish people. Uh, I'm arguing that his crucifixion in part is a, is a kind of anticipation of the suffering, the judgment the Jewish people will experience in 70 uh, with the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city and the, the going into exile of, of the Jewish people. But that similarly, his resurrection is an anticipation and a pledge in the ultimate power which ensures a uh, restored life of, uh, of the Jewish people uh, in, in the land and centered um, in the holy city. Uh, and so it's also an argument that the city of Jerusalem is supposed to be of central significance uh, for Christians and not just for Jews. That, uh, that Jerusalem is the, is the real uh, ultimate center of the church just as it is uh, the center of Israel. Uh, and the, uh, the book is also a kind of uh, exegesis, a, a comment, not a, not a commentary in a chapter by chapter sense, but a, an examination of the Acts of the Apostles and uh, also the Gospel of Luke. Uh, what I wanted to do here is talk about 
uh, some verses from the first chapter of Acts. And uh, I think these, these verses get at the heart of what I'm trying to do um, within the book, but I think they also get at the heart of some things that are fundamental to what God's been doing in the world uh, in the last hundred years or so. Um, and uh, where I'm uh, starting is really uh, right at the beginning of the first chapter of Acts, uh, in verse 4, the resurrected Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he says, while staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So... Uh, this is one of those several verses in the New Testament that speaks about being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, I was uh, for many years involved in a, a charismatic community. Uh, we talked a lot about being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and within a kind of Pentecostal charismatic context, being baptized in the Holy Spirit has come to be used as a term that simply expresses what any individual uh, who has come to the faith of Jesus can experience at a certain stage of their life where they are opened up to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives and they, be, they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, recently I had reread uh, a, a book from uh, the uh, late great uh, Father Peter Hocken um, in which he talks about this term, being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I'd read this book before, but I'd forgotten that he said this. Uh, and P Peter argued that the term being baptized in the Spirit wasn't this, this kind of generic term that simply describes what happens in light of, at life of any individual disciple of Jesus when they have a certain experience of the Spirit. He argued that it was, a, it was a prophetic term that had a kind of eschatological significance uh, that uh, was an anticipation and a dramatic way of the coming of God's kingdom. And he, he showed how it was only used a few times, actually. It wasn't the normal term being used in the New Testament. Um, uh, it was, uh, and that in these contexts, it was more of a, of a very special kind of corporate inbreaking of the Holy Spirit um, that bringing a kind of uh, anticipation uh, of the ultimate fullness of God's reign and rule in the earth. Uh, that it always had this, this forward-looking orientation to what uh, God was going to do uh, at the end. And uh, I, I come to think that, uh, that Father Peter was right and that this um, makes sense of this passage and, and this chapter so the event that happens on Pentecost, I think, is not just a kind of a template or a paradigm of what happens in the life of, any, of every individual. It's, it's like this, this fundamental inbreaking of the life of the world to come, breaking into the world now and giving a hint or an anticipation of, uh, of that which is the ultimate destiny of, of God's people uh, and of the whole world, really. 
of what God is desiring for, his, for this world. So, uh, but then that leads right into the next set of verses where uh, Jesus has this dialogue with his disciples about what comes next. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, um, and I'll continue. Jesus replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he brings it back to, again, the issue of the Holy Spirit. But there's been a lot of debate about these verses as how they should be taken. The disciples asked this question, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And the, that in Greek, this phrase, restore, even the word that's used to restore, for restore, is a, is a term that gets used in uh, Jewish Greek in the first century, specifically to refer to Israel's uh, full restoration, the restoration of Israel at the, the end of the age. Uh, the regathering of the 12 tribes, and um, etc. And so it's very clear that the disciples have in mind, even though they've been through the crucifixion, they've been through the resurrection, they've been with Jesus for uh, the 40 days uh, of his teaching among them, and they still have in mind this view that he's the Messiah, the King of Israel, and that uh, this means that uh, his reign and his kingdom is coming. And from, from the resurrection, probably rather than uh, in any way dissuading them or making them think that, the, that it was a more spiritualized message, had just given them the conviction, okay, well, it's coming soon. The, uh, the answer that Jesus gives has usually been interpreted uh, over the centuries as Jesus correcting his disciples. Yep and saying, you've got it all wrong. You guys are still thinking in a very fleshly, materialistic way. You're, you're thinking the way Jews think, you know? And you shouldn't think like Jews think. You need to think in more spiritual Christian ways, you know? Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, the, there isn't going to be a restoration of the kingdom to Israel that's based in Jerusalem. You know, you, and instead, in place of that, there is going to be a different kind of kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom in people's hearts. And your task is to receive this kingdom in your heart through the Holy Spirit and then go out uh, from Jerusalem and go to the four corners of the earth and bring it to the whole world. Uh, and that's the, the end of the story. And then I'll come, you know, afterwards. Now that's the way this text has usually been understood. Uh, but you know, there's really almost nothing in this text that actually would make you think that that's what Jesus was saying. Uh, clearly Jesus is saying to them, um, this isn't the time for the full restoration of the kingdom. That there is something else that has, some things that have to happen first. 
But there's no indication here that he's telling them that there is no restoration of a kingdom to Israel. The things that have to happen involve them going out after receiving the Holy Spirit and bringing a message of the kingdom to the four corners of the, of the earth, to the ends of the earth, as it says. Now, many, many biblical scholars have read this verse and have said that it gives us a kind of key to the outline of the book of Acts. You know, it, it's a kind of ge geographical outline of the way the book of Acts works. It says, you know, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. The book of Acts begins in Jerusalem and the first several chapters, they all take place in Jerusalem. And in all Judea, remember Peter goes off to, uh, to, to Jaffa and it talks about the fact that there are more uh, things happening in the cities of Ju Judea outside of Jerusalem. And Samaria. Remember in how the Samaritans received the good news and they, uh, the apostles come and pray over them and receive the Holy Spirit? And then the ends of the earth. And then boom, Paul comes on the scene and uh, you know, he's going to Asia Minor, to, you know, to Turkey, what's Turkey today, and then he's uh, going off to Corinth and to Greece. And then the book ends with Paul in Rome. So the book starts in Jerusalem and it ends with Paul and And so the way, again, many commentators have read this, this verse, and the way they've read the entire structure of the book of Acts, is that it, this is the story of how the good news starts in the midst of the Jewish people, and then it, in effect, goes beyond the Jewish people and reaches its, its destiny in the heart of, the, of the, the Gentile Empire of Rome. And that's its goal. And, and at that point, the story is over for the Jewish people. Beginning in, the story begins in Jerusalem, but it ends in Rome. And this fits perfectly with this interpretation of the fact that Jesus is, like, is correcting his disciples about their question. You know, that, that, that it's the wrong kind of, of question because while we're starting in Jerusalem, we end at the ends of the earth. We, we, we end uh, in Rome. Now, what that interpretation of this verse um, misses is something about the, the way the structure of Acts actually works. And if you, I, I encourage you sometime, read through the book of Acts and just pay attention to the geography of the book. And again, superficially, it looks like it's simply starting Jerusalem and then moving out, moving out, moving out, moving out, moving out, and boom, you know, you're, you're way out here. But actually, the way the book works is you start in Jerusalem, and then what happens is the, the, the gospel goes out, for example, to Caesarea with Cornelius, and then it comes back to Jerusalem. And Peter has to come back to Jerusalem and explain in, in, in Acts 11 what happened in Acts 10. And then the story goes further out. Now we go to Antioch. You know, well, actually, we go to Damascus you know, with, with Saul. 
and then it comes back to Jerusalem. It's because Saul comes comes to Jerusalem to Judea and then and then goes again. Then it goes further out to Antioch, and in Acts we have Acts thirteen, and then from Antioch it even goes further out into Asia Minor. But then in Acts fifteen it comes back to Jerusalem. And then we have Paul's second missionary journey, which takes him further out. But then it says Paul went up. Paul comes into the land and he goes up, which means he went up to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So he goes up. Every, Every journey that Paul takes, he always ends up by returning to Jerusalem. Uh, And then uh, Paul has his, his final missionary journey. And then in order to, and then he's, it says he wants to be back in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And so then we have this, the scenes in Acts 21, where he comes back to Jerusalem, he meets with James and the elders, uh, and then he, uh, he gets arrested with a riot in the temple, um, and then he gets sent to Rome, and the, the, the book ends in Rome. So, it does, so rather than this kind of nice, neat geographical line of you know Jerusalem, Damascus, or Jerusalem, Samaria, Damascus, Antioch, you know, Corinth, Rome, what you've got is this continually expanding arc that always returns, always returns, always returns until you come to the end and there's no return. You know, you, the, it, and it's as if the story is cut right in the middle of the story. And if you're paying close attention to the way the geographical structure of the book works, you expect another return to Jerusalem but it doesn't happen. And so then the question is, what is actually going on here? What is the message that the book's telling us through the way it's set up geographically? Well, I think that that actually can become clearest through the next verses. Uh, And these are verses that we often refer to as uh, the description of the ascension, the ascension of Jesus. It says in verse 9, When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So, the disciples, Jesus leads his disciples out east of the city to the Mount of Olives. He goes to the top of the Mount of Olives, and then he ascends and and. and and we have this vision then of a couple of angels who, who offer these rather uh, enigmatic words to the apostles, where they say the way in which he's gone is the way in which he will return. Now, most times commentators and most times just readers don't pay any attention to that verse and ask the question, what does that mean? What does it mean that 
you know, the way he went is the way in which he will return. Obviously, it, it does mean there will be a return, that the ascension itself is telling us that the, the, the removal of the resurrected Jesus in bodily form is a temporary uh, removal. It's not a permanent removal. Just as he's going, so he will come back. So in that sense, it just, it just means that. But I think it actually means a lot more than that. And I think it's also speaking to us uh, geographically. And I think in order to see that, we have to look at some texts from the prophets in order to understand, in particular, the significance of the Mount of Olives. Now, in, in, in preparation for my book, I was really taken aback. I read one particular, there's one particular English author who wrote a book about Jerusalem and Jesus. And he argued that in Luke and Acts, uh, one of the ways you can see why Jerusalem is really not so important to, uh, to, Luke, to the, these books, Luke and Acts, is the stress that the books place on the Mount of Olives. He's saying, look, the Mount of Olives isn't even in Jerusalem. And by putting so much emphasis on the Mount of Olives, it's like it is a way of uh, relativizing the significance of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, now, that I think is, a, is really pretty crazy, um, but I think it also, it's raising at least a question, which is a question worth asking, which is why the Mount of Olives? What's the importance of the Mount of Olives? The Mount of Olives ends up being important in Luke uh, in general, you know, like the Mount of Olives is also the place where Jesus begins his descent into the city on Palm Sunday. You know, it, all, it starts on the Mount of Olives and then he, he's coming down, you know, on, on the donkey. Uh, and, uh, and then he stops partway down in Luke and he weeps over the city of Jerusalem and anticipates the judgment that's coming upon the city. And so um, the Mount of Olives is very important in that text. And, uh, and so it's also worth asking why. Why, is, why the Mount of Olives here and the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 1 with the Ascension? Uh, and there are a couple of texts I think that are especially important. Uh, the first is from the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, and Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you know, he is prophesying at this point just before Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in 586. And he has this, he's at, at the time actually with the, uh, an earlier group of exiles in Babylon. But he has a vision of Jerusalem that's given to him. And of all of the bad things that are going on in Jerusalem, the idolatry that's being committed, etc. And then he has this vision of the presence of God. We, in later rabbinic tradition, we call it the Shekhinah. He calls it the kavod, the glory, the glory of God. As a, it's a kind of visible uh, presence, glory, presence of, of God that, that dwells in the temple. And he has this vision of the glory of God uh, rising from the temple. 
and departing from the temple, thus by, thereby making the temple vulnerable to invasion. Because the idea is, as long as God is there, the, the, the temple is invulnerable. You know, it can't be defeated. It can't be taken. But when God departs from the temple, then the temple can be destroyed by by an enemy. And so Ezekiel has this picture of of the the departure of the divine presence, but the divine presence doesn't depart and go to heaven. Uh, what Ezekiel sees is the divine presence leaves Jerusalem and goes to be with the exiled Jews in Babylonia. And that means it's going east, from Jerusalem, Jerusalem east to Iraq today. Um, and in, in Ezekiel 11, I think we'll get the exact verses here, excuse me. In Ezekiel 11, going to describe it. What Ezekiel sees is the, gl the glory of God leaving the city, and then it rests first on the Mount of Olives. On, its way, on the way out of the city. Because it's going east, and the Mount of Olives is right there. And then it goes from the Mount of Olives to be with the exiles. And then uh, in, in Ezekiel 43, you know, Ezekiel has this vision of the future restored Jerusalem and the new temple that will be built. And it's as if he is transported to Jerusalem in a vision. And he sees now the same kavod, the glory, the Shekhinah, returning. And it's again, it's returning from the east. And, and so it, coming from the east, again, it passes through the Mount of Olives. So... This first picture that we get from the prophet Ezekiel is this sense of the, the Shekhinah uh, departing and the Mount of Olives being an expression of the departure, one of the stages in the departure. Uh, but also, it's one of the stages of the return. The other text, which is even maybe a little clearer uh, about about this is Zechariah chapter four, 14. Zechariah 14 is this um, rather bloody chapter uh, about this great battle at the end of the age. And uh, at a time when Jerusalem is being attacked by the nations, what we read in the beginning of Zechariah 14 it says, uh, then the Lord, this is in verse 13, then Adonai will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies between Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the Mount shall, shall withdraw northward and the other half southward. 
So here again, the significance of the Mount of Olives is it's like it's the place uh, that leads. That's like on. It's the last stage of the journey with the divine presence here, um, coming to battle, as opposed to Ezekiel, where it's simply coming and returning to a restored temple. But in both of these texts, the Mount of Olives is is key in terms of the presence of God and the returning of the Shekhinah to Jerusalem. Now, in the, in the light of these texts, when we read the angels speaking to the disciples and saying, the way you, what you've seen, the way in which he's gone is the way he will come back. I think what the message is, is just as he is leaving from the Mount of Olives, and leaving the city of Jerusalem, so we will return by way of the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And so the, in the light of that, this key text at the very beginning of Acts 1, the interpretation of the ending of Acts would be that the story, basically the story is, is ended in mid, mid-term. Basically, the, just as the ascension points to this sense of a new exile, you might say. Uh, so the story ending in Rome points to a new exile. Rome is, is elsewhere in the New Testament like the new Babylon. The place, the city which both is the destroyer of Israel, but also was the place of refuge for Israel. It's where the Jews end up being taken into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, but then they rebuild in Babylon and end up coming back to Jerusalem. So Rome is, is like the place of exile. The story of Luke and Acts only ends when these verses are fulfilled that Jesus re- returns to the Mount of Olives and to the city of, of, the city of Jerusalem. And so there's a kind of prophetic picture which makes sense out of that structure of Acts which goes outwards and then back to Jerusalem, outwards, back to Jerusalem, outwards, and then ends at the furthest outward point and stops because the story only ends when the story returns back to Jerusalem. Now, the... uh, I think this, um, now we might ask what, why is this of importance? I mean, it's a nice little Bible study, uh, you know, for understanding the book of Acts. Um, you know, why is this? Well, let me just add one more detail from Luke and Acts, and then um, try and uh, maybe draw some, some applications for us. I wanted to go back again to Palm Sunday. What is going on in Palm Sunday? What, you know, it's kind of unusual. Palm Sunday, Jesus rides in this donkey on, into Jerusalem. And sometimes we, it's talked about as the triumphal entry. But uh, that's, not, that's only partially true. It's triumphal in the sense that the disciples celebrate 
Jesus coming into the city. But the city doesn't celebrate. The city doesn't welcome uh, Jesus. It's only those who are coming with Jesus from Galilee who are celebrating as he's coming in. They're the ones who say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In, in Hebrew, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. And so, this is the point of what Jesus says in Matthew 23, where he, he, he says, you will not see me again until you say, and the you there is a reference to the leaders of the city of Jerusalem, until you, the leaders of Jerusalem, which means the leaders of the Jewish people, which means the corporate reality of Israel, say, Baruch haba Adonai, Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, you will not see me again until the response that you, as representatives of the Jewish people as a whole, give to me is the same response that my disciples gave as I was coming into Jerusalem. The point of Palm Sunday is that it is a kind of, it is a, a, a prophetic symbolic act. What Jesus is doing, he's very, he's setting it up, in other words. This is, he, he is riding on a donkey. He picks the donkey because it also refers to a prophecy in, in, in the prophet Zechariah. He's, he's doing this as a symbolic act. It's, and it is saying, this is, you know, I will ride into the city of Jerusalem and I will be received by the leaders of the city of Jerusalem uh, in the way in which my disciples are greeting me now. And it'll only be on that day when these, the fullness of these promises are realized and fulfilled. And so that reading of Palm Sunday fits perfectly with this reading of the Ascension also taking place on the Mount of Olives and with the structure of the Book of Acts. Now, uh, this past year, uh, I was mentioning to some of you who were sitting with me at lunch, um, I was uh, rereading this, uh, this book by Father Peter Hocken. He wrote it in 1995, or four, 1994, called The Glory and the Shame. It's, uh, it's an amazing book. I recommend that you all read it or reread it if, you, if you've read it uh, at, at some time in the past. Uh, and I read it soon after it was written, and I thought back then, this is a really good book. I reread it after Father Peter's passing this past summer, and I had a different response, which was, this is a really great book. Uh, and, and, that, and even more, what I had, the, my response was, this is a prophetic book. This is, like, this is an inspired book. This is a book for our day. Uh, now, uh, re, I, I was reading it too after I had already done all of this uh, study of Acts and had already written a lot about the, the geographical structure of Acts and all that was going on and, and how Acts itself is pointing to this, in effect, a kind of reversal of everything that's happening in Acts, that it's pointing to a day when it, it all weaves its way back to Jerusalem. And I saw that Father Peter did something really fascinating in this book, um, but he's not doing it as so much as exegesis. He's, this is a book where he's, he's looking at the 20th century history of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, starting with the Pentecostal movement uh, at Azusa Street, and then uh, 
and then looking at the denominational Protestant uh, charismatic movement, uh, particularly in like around the 1960s, and then the, the Catholic charismatic movement uh, in the early 1970s, uh, and also the Messianic Jewish movement, which rises at the same time as the Catholic charismatic movement. And Father Peter talks about how uh, it was significant that the Pentecostal movement began with a set of people who were on the margins. They were, they were like totally separated from the historical reality of the church and the centers of power within the life of, of, the, of the church and, and the sense of continuity with the whole history. It was like this set of people, you know, these were some poor black people, but also some poor white people who were with them, an integrated group, who suddenly had this, this, this experience of, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and, and so the Pentecostal movement grows among other people like them for, for many, many years. And then this strange thing happens where some Protestants in Protestant churches have the same experience that these Pentecostals had. And these Pentecostals at first didn't think that was possible. You know, they, they, uh, they thought, no, this was something that could only, you could, you could only have this experience if you left those dead churches uh, and, and came out from among them, you know. Uh, but the, suddenly folks in these, in these Protestant churches having this experience of the Holy Spirit. And then maybe a decade and a decade and a half later, it's like Catholics having this experience. And of course, some of the Protestants had, uh, who had been baptized in the Holy Spirit had the same reaction uh, to the Catholics uh, as the Pentecostals did. But of course, the Pentecostals even more so did. What is happening here? You know, whoever thought that the, the, the Holy Spirit could show up among Catholics. And at the same time, though, this experience and just the, the, the light, this encounter with, with Jesus, with Yeshua, is taking place among Jews. And so uh, Father Peter, who was also just a study, a historian, and a study of renewal movements in the history of the church. So he was very knowledgeable throughout the history of the church of different ways in which the Holy Spirit had worked um, and he asked this question, he said, do we have any, any precedents, any uh, examples from church history where you had this, the same basic spiritual experience that was occurring among different groups of people, each of whom had, had thought that the next group was excluded from having that experience? Uh, and the answer he gives is there was only one example that he knew of in the whole history of the church where it had happened. And it was in the book of Acts. Because mm -hmm. this is the response that the Jews have when the Samaritans first you know, uh, uh, have, uh, have God working among them in this way. And then the response to the Gentiles. First Gentiles in the synagogue and then Gentiles who are not even connected to the synagogue. And, and, what, and Father Peter took it even further. He, and he said, what we have here is, is each of these, um, each of the groups in, 
uh, in the first century, it was getting further and further removed from this continuity of God's work with the people of God. You know, starting with Israel, which represented that continuity, the Samaritans next, who had a certain continuity, but you know, were related to by the Jewish people as, as only being like kind of half Israelites. And then up to Gentiles who are in the immediate environment of the synagogue, and then to simply Gentiles who are not connected. And he says, we have the exact reverse phenomenon happening in the 20th century outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Where it's moving in, not just from the margins, but from this radical discontinuity with the historical expression of the life of the people of God. And at each stage of the way, getting more and more connected to those groups, those bodies within the, you know, the life and history of uh, the people of God, who, who were most, uh, most committed to a sense of, of this continuous identity as a people. Ending not just with the Catholics, but with the Jews. And then, uh, in addition to all of that, Father Peter was also pointing out about how in this first century reality that Acts is anticipating, we also, it's also set against the backdrop of the destruction of the temple in 70 and the exile of the Jewish people from the land. And what we have then in the midst of the 20th century is not only this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and all of these different groups, including then the emergence of the Messianic Jewish movement, but a return of Jews to the land, the reestablishment of a Jewish national presence within the land, uh, and even to the point of the, the, the unity of the city of Jerusalem under Jewish uh, authority. Uh, and, uh, you know, so this suddenly all of these historical phenomena suddenly click into place, and you say, something is going on here. And, and then that notion that being baptized in the Spirit is not just this sort of universal thing that, that people have uh, if they're really tuned into God, but that it's an, an action of God that has this eschatological significance that's pointing forward to the return of the Messiah. Uh, and what that then makes all of this 20th century history and now early 21st century history point in this direction that, 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 that points us forward um, and uh, in, in a longing for, for Yeshua and for Yeshua's kingdom. So one more thing. I'll, be, I'll wrap up in just a moment and then we'll open things up, okay? Oh yeah, say, go on. I, don't, I think you intended this, but you, I don't think you said it explicitly. Also, Azusa Street was geographically at the ends of the earth. Yeah, that's right. That's true. So it goes to the ends yes. of the earth. Yes, that's true. So, I mean, what was striking to me again with Father, what Father Peter had done there was he, he was coming up with something based on just a, look, a study, a kind of spiritual prophetic study of the history of the 20th century that was almost exactly what I had been coming up with on, a, on, on just an exegetical study of the book of Acts, um, which made one think that, that this wasn't just a... It, neither was it a coincidence, but neither was it just a providential work of God. It was like this was prophetically anticipated by the author of the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
This was what was actually intended. The book of Acts is, a, is itself a kind of prof- prophecy. Um, and this is largely what I'm trying to uh, present in, in this book, Jerusalem Crucified, Jerusalem Risen. And what I'm, uh, I want to draw maybe just a final conclusion or two that relates to this idea of reconciliation. Uh, I think this, what Father Peter was trying to say was, not, was that with each of these new moves of the Holy Spirit in the 20th century, there was, it wasn't just that the Spirit was now moving on and working in a group that wasn't anticipated God's working, uh, God working, but that the part of the purpose of that work of the Holy Spirit was to reconcile each of those bodies with the other. Just as the original work of the Holy Spirit, the purpose of this going out was to bring reconciliation of Samaritans and Jews, of Jews and Samaritans and, uh, and Gentiles. So the, the, the purpose of this work in the 21st century is to bring uh, you know, Pentecostals into relationship with, with Protestants, into relationship with Catholics and Orthodox, and then into relationship with Jews. Uh, into uh, a new kind of 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 whole of wholeness and unity, but that it I think where it points to is a way in which that that the city of Jerusalem itself and the Jewish people are meant to be a kind of ecumenical force. Mm-hmm. Uh, a it's not just a kind of prophetic thing of isn't it cool. You know that God is is that Jesus is going to return to Jerusalem, and 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 let's uh, you know think about all of the exciting things when Jesus returns. It's more that if if we all have a common center, if we're all looking to the same place, we're all side by side pointing in the same direction. Uh, instead of having. Uh, Russian Orthodox pointing to Moscow uh, and Greek Orthodox pointing to uh, Istanbul, uh, Constantinople, and Catholics pointing to Rome uh, and Lutherans pointing to Wittenberg, <laughs> you know, and uh, Pentecostals pointing to Azusa Street or wherever. Uh, you know, it's, it, if there's this sense that there is really one center for the entire people of God, this is what the Jewish people experience. You know, we are really, we're all across the board. We, we, we don't agree on anything with one another, uh, theologically or politically, and, you know. Uh, and yet, Jews around the world have a sense of commonality and are able to rally together um, when there's a point of, of, of great central concern. And one of that, the main unifying forces is Jerusalem. Uh, whenever a Jew prays, they pray towards Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and I think that, uh, that this is the, the city, as well as God's work with the Jewish people, can, has at least the potential. It hasn't been this so far, but it has the potential to be a force for, uh, for, for unity among uh, the, the Christian churches. This is, I mean, I experienced this in, in, an, in, in being in leadership for 20 years in an ecumenical community. I found that um, 
a lot of times the way we were able to bypass the divisions or, uh, and disagreements between Protestants and Catholics was by offering a Jewish perspective on the topic. And the Jewish perspective often bypassed the disagreements that the Catholics had with the Protestants, and both sides were able to hear it. And, uh, and, and so I think there's, a, there's, this, there's an ecumenical gift that God wants to give that is supposed to come both through, I think, Messianic Jews and the Jewish people as a whole. Now, for that gift to be fully realized, that uh, Messianic Jews and the Jewish people as a whole have to lean into it in a way that we haven't yet. But my sense is that this is something that will happen. And in fact, to be honest with you, I see it already, something's happening in the Messianic movement. Um, the Messianic movement uh, up until the last 10 years was like, was incredibly fragmented uh, with uh, leaders not talking to one another, with uh, you know, terrible mistrust. And so like in this little movement, <laughs> uh, you know, which is, some thousand of people, thousands of people, but not hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and we, how could we be an ecumenical force for unity when uh, we wouldn't talk to one another? Uh, but something's happened in the last 10 years or so that's been a dramatic change. And there's been a great amount of healing among leaders within the Messianic Jewish movement. There's m much more trust. Um, there, it's not that we agree with one another, on, on a lot more than we did. It's more that we simply have uh, have recognized that we have to listen to one another, and 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 when we do listen to one another, we find that uh, the other guy the other guy wasn't as crazy as we thought, um, even though we might disagree with him. Um, and and so I think this is I see this as an anticipation of a day when Messianic Jews can actually s s have a calling, a vocation, an ecumenical vocation, uh, in a way that we, we're not yet able to realize, but I think someday we will. Um, but I think even anticipation of that day, uh, for, for, for Christians to, uh, to rethink their approach to Jerusalem uh, and the Jewish people is, is, uh, is something that, uh, needs to be done and that hopefully um, you know this book will will help to uh, facilitate so comments questions thoughts anything